Good morning. Thanks for joining us. I have to admit, I kind of assumed half of y'all would be traveling today or something. Glad you're here. Glad you could join us today. Some of you are traveling, I guess, right? So welcome. Glad you're here. Hey, let's, uh, before we begin this morning in, uh, in our study in the Word, let's open up to um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read together. I'll invite you to stand as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read verse 9. By the way, I heard the door open during worship there. We're going to presume that's the Holy Spirit coming in. So I'm going to leave that open, okay? All right. All right. Let's read verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read verse 9 together. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Father, we thank you for the blessed truth of the inheritance that you have given the saints. Uh, Lord, we don't want to take for granted the beautiful gift that you have given us and all that yet awaits and all that you even bless us through today, just in knowing you and walking with you, things we'll talk about today to some extent. But, Father, we do want to take advantage of these things and walk in them and live in the expectation of what is yet to come. Father, all that you have prepared for us is a rich and important blessing, both now and forever. And so we want to think on these things today as we open your word. We pray that you'd bless our time together. We pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed take your word today and drive it deep into our hearts, helping us to understand it and ultimately then to live it. We thank you, Father, and praise you and bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, we're actually going to be uh, continuing in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, last week we only got through two verses. So today we're only going to get through one. That seemed awfully fast last week. So we're going to slow it down just a little bit. Take our time, you know. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, what we believe, what we believe will always impact how we think and also how we live. Uh, whether you are a Christian or not, whatever it is that is at your core, whatever you believe, is going to affect you. Now, as believers, we have the expectation of an eternity that awaits us. Now, we talk about that from time to time, and as usual, I'll encourage you to really take a moment and think that through. We have an eternity that awaits us. Now, this is not something that is only a blessing to think about then, But that expectation affects the way we live and think now. Knowing that we have a secure place at the table, literally, uh, the knowledge that one day when we breathe our last on earth, we'll breathe our first in heaven, is something that fills our hearts with a sense of what is yet to come, a wonder at that. However, it also, the knowledge that that is sure and waiting for believers allows us to live with a certain kind of a freedom today, Uh, a freedom from fear, 
insofar as we can experience that. I know that's tough for some of us, right? When circumstances get a little rough, sometimes we begin to fear and begin to feel anxiety in that. But there is a sense in which when we understand what is yet to come, and when we know who that eternity and future is rooted in and built upon, it does allow us to approach each day with the understanding that as bad as it ever gets here, that's as bad as it's going to get. There's a day coming when all of that ends. There's a shelf life to everything that we experience in this life. When you know that, it affects the way that you live. It affects the way you think. It affects the way you make decisions and you approach life. There is a richness that comes with being a child of God. There are spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, as Paul would just speak about. Heaven being not only the place where they're located, but also the throne of God from which they're dispensed. And it is a good thing for us to take time to consider what that means. That it might ultimately sink into our thinking and our living, our understanding of how to approach life today. In other words, we live life today in the context of eternity. For those who wrestle with the idea of what's next, let me encourage you that throughout our time this morning that you consider the weight of eternity and the beauty and the joy of it. And if you are afraid that it's not waiting for you, let me encourage you, and we'll certainly give an opportunity before we finish our service this morning, to consider being right with God today that you might know that you have eternal life. As a matter of fact, John in his first epistle said, these things we have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know, have a certainty of, understand, that you have eternal life, that it is something that you can know today that you presently possess. So when we talk about breathing our last here and our first there, that's not just sort of a pithy, quaint way of describing that. That is a truth, that when you shut your eyes here, you'll open them in glory in your homecoming. Now, whether that's through your passing or whether that's through the rapture, whatever way that takes place, to know with certainty that you will stand in the presence of him in whose presence is fullness of joy is something that cannot help but affect your way of living today. And so let me encourage you that as we go through this passage and the ones to follow. Now, we're only looking at verse 3 today because really it forms a summary and an introduction to verses 4 through 14, uh, which are among the loftiest in all of the New Testament. Uh, this is mountaintop territory for Paul as he begins to talk about not only what this spiritual blessing ultimately entails, but even how sure it is. Uh, matter of fact, it's interesting, this Verses 3 through 14 in the Greek are actually one continual sentence of about 200 words in the Greek. Pastors love that. We love long-winded passages. It gives us license. But that's uh, that's what it is. It's actually just one sentence. We It's broken up a little bit, I mean, with commas and such and everything here in the English. And some of your versions, maybe there's even a period stuck in there. But it's, uh, it's a long, long sentence that ultimately is not just a sentence that is simply uh, marked by like a clinical theology. This is actually seen by most, and myself included, as a song of praise. It's, it's often held akin to like the Psalms of the Old Testament. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you look at the passage as we break it down, we won't get, obviously get to it today. We're just looking at sort of the summary introduction to it. But when we go through the passage, you'll see that... 
there is both mention of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all worthy of praise throughout. This is not just a theological treatise. It's not just uh, an eloquent way of expressing um, some things that we just sort of read and say, okay, cool, and then move on. This is actually presented in quite a worshipful way. It's actually not terribly unlike uh, the final few verses in Romans chapter 11, where Paul also has been dealing with this lofty subject of God's sovereignty and his all of these things. Now, I'm going to say that. I made sure I threw that word out early. Because some of you all get scared when you hear a word like that. Sovereignty. What if God didn't choose me? Well, if you're worried about it, it's probably a good indication that you shouldn't worry about it. You should actually just make sure you get right with God today. It's actually true of everybody who sits here. We all need to be making sure we're right with God. But sovereignty is not a word that should scare us. It's a word that should give us a foundation of utter security, a sense of knowing that we're in him and we're homed in him and always will be. We'll talk more about that as we go through. But that word will come up. And we don't avoid the hard subjects. We go through the word and we study these things and we let the scriptures tell us what it tells us. And we don't avoid these things because they're difficult or they might be a little frightening. Instead, we want to make sure we hit them head on and talk about them, that we might understand the word of God, because that's what this is. It is the word of God. It is God's revelation to his people. And here we are studying it, gifted, blessed with the opportunity to do so. And so this is going to be a lofty area to go through over the next couple of weeks. Uh, as we make our way through it. But here again in verse 3, let me read this once again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. By the way, is it warm in here, or am I just feeling warm because of what I just said? Are you warm? Are you good? Okay, okay, that's a mixed response. I'll leave the the temperature where it is, because I always get rebuked for lowering it. So... Um, but anyway, so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this, again, is a bit of a doxology, and I want to start our examination of this passage by pointing out that while because this is a look at a deep area of theology, the study of God, we're going to look at verses, again, 3 through 14, as sort of see them as a set, looking at just the first verse today, but it is interesting, significant, that Paul begins this section with a doxology, which means praise. He approaches this subject beginning with the words, blessed is, or blessed be. The word be and is is not actually there in the Greek. And so it's left open as to which term best fits. But the idea here is that God is indeed blessed because of these things. It's praise and worship toward him. All good study of theology, any meaningful approach to studying theology should naturally lead to meaningful doxology. In other words, our study of theology should never just be a dry exercise, an academic pursuit that is simply left in that category. It is important to understand things, don't get me wrong. The idea of approaching it with an academic mind, I want to understand this, I want to learn what the Greek says, I want to see how the dots are connected, I want to see how this fits both in the immediate context, the book context, and the scriptures as a whole context. How does this fit? I want to know that. You should want to know that. But if it just simply ends with a deeper understanding and that's all, that's not all that's intended. The idea is that theology should lead us to worship. A study of God, if we think about it, how can a study of God do any less? Think about the subject that we're engaging and learning about. The subject of God himself, the creator of the universe, the one who is far outside of our scope of understanding, who is 
beyond the realm of our ex- existence, and we would never know him had he not made himself known to us. We might know about him. Romans 1 says we can look at the creation and scratch our heads and say, wow, how did that get there? Certainly somebody must have made this. It's spoken of as sort of a, a patently obvious truth, and so we would have known something about God. That's what's called general revelation. But special revelation, learning about the actual person of God himself, requires him making himself known to us. We can see his creativity, but we can't really know the mind of God in any detail except that he make it known to us. And this is one of those places where he sort of allows us to take a few more steps forward in that direction. But I will tell you, as a bit of a spoiler, that when we get through verse 14, you're going to be really disappointed. Uh, because there's no way for us, probably even on the other side of the threshold, when we see him, to really fully understand the mind of God, even in our glorified uh, bodies and such, there will likely still be some point that is still beyond the vanishing point. God is glorious beyond compare. He is beautiful beyond description. He is wonderful. And to study him and to consider him is a pursuit to catch just a glimpse of that wonder. And that's always worthy of our pursuit. And so Paul begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every benefit from the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Blessed be, praise be to, praise be given to, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice we haven't even gotten to the whole difficult thing I was just talking about. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, throughout this passage, when we finally get through verse 14, you'll see that both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three are mentioned and are referenced and are seen as worthy of praise. And so at the outset of this expression of these ideas is the idea of the nature of God itself. God is not an it. I'm referring to his nature in that term. God is personal, and he in his very being is beyond our capacity to understand. God is triune in nature, which is to say that he is one in being. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We do not believe in three gods. We don't believe in a multitude of gods. We believe in a single God. However, he has made himself known in that his existence comprises three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it is a frightful thing to go beyond that description. And many have tried to sort of explain this concept of the union of these three persons in this one being of God. And there have been decent attempts to try and give an example in the world, in life, that we could sort of get our minds around this idea a little bit. But they all fall short, some woefully short, some less so, but they all fall short. There is no exact uh, example of this anywhere in nature and creation. The idea that there are not three gods but one, yet somehow eternally existent, in three persons. And that is essentially how the creeds do their best to explain this idea. The scriptures don't explain the how. The scriptures simply express the what. This is what God is. This is who God is. 
And in the same way that any one of us would have the right to express who we are and what we are to anyone who would try to describe us, certainly God no less, right? Uh, if, uh, if you ask Julie, my wife, about me, she could tell you a lot about me. She could tell you more than any of you can about me, and hopefully she won't, but she could. <laughs> but she knows me better than anybody, right? Even still, if someone asked me a question about something about myself, I would still have the prerequisite right to explain what I'm all about, right? At the end of the day, and so would she, right? And so would you. When it comes to the Lord, when it comes to the God of creation, I don't understand how he can be triune in nature and still be one God. But throughout Scripture, this is what the Word of God, his revelation to us of himself, says. And so therefore... That is one of the very, very few things in my faith that I have to take by faith. It's one of the beauties of the Christian faith is that there are very few things that you actually have to take by faith. Um, and that's one of them. Most other things you can, through scripture and even through, uh, you know, as a believer, reasonably understand and explain a lot of things that God has, has told us in his word. But we do come to these precipices once in a while where we see this chasm between what I understand and what could possibly be understood across the other side and realize that I don't quite have the mental horsepower to bridge that. And as I said at the beginning, likely never will. It is fascinating to me that the cherubs around the throne worship him day and night forever, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Something that really stands out to me about that is there's no mention of them ever getting bored. They are absolutely captivated with the very person of God around the throne. And they can't help but worship day and night. It's what they, they are just so completely overwhelmed at who he is. And angels are these super beings and cherubs are these super angels. Imagine what it's going to be like when we stand before the throne, arm in arm with people from every tribe, tongue and nation, worshiping around the throne and experiencing eternity with God there at the heart of it. Just the wonder, the, the try, you know, it's just breathtaking to think about, much less imagine yourself in that place one day, much less knowing we're going to be in that place one day. That That's coming for us. Well, Paul here begins this very lofty section of this book of Ephesians by just wondering and blessing God. Now, part of the blessing and the wonder of this is that this God, who is so separate from and so other than and so higher above, has chosen to bless us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now, when you and I think about what we, certainly what we were, but I even take Paul at Romans 7 and say what we are, and even consider in our redeemed state and our capacity to still be incapable of doing some of the things I know I should be doing, but the things I know I shouldn't be doing, I still find myself doing. Wretched man that I am, right? Not Paul's not saying wretched man that I was. Wretched man that I am. What? Paul, you're, you're like super saint. Bro, even Paul recognizes his fallenness in his flesh, the battle that exists between the spirit and the flesh and this kind of thing within the life of a believer. This is common to us. And so when we consider that truth, we are redeemed now. Thank God for that. But imagine what we were before. If you can remember back then, some of you got saved really young and I envy you. And of course, that's wrong. I shouldn't envy anybody, but I really do. A lot of water went under the bridge before I got saved. 
And I still do remember what I was like, and most of you, probably all of you can, to some extent, remember what you were like before you knew Jesus. As we make our way through this passage, one of the most profound truths we're going to come to understand is that you had nothing to do with moving from that condition to this condition, other than believing. Other than believing. Now, we talked last week about the idea that grace means that we don't earn anything when it comes to our salvation. We don't do something that puts us in God's good graces and therefore we're now in in good standing with him. That's something he does. So when you consider the grandness, beauty, purity, glory, greatness of God and the fact that he would reach into life and save you and I, that is absolutely mind-bending. I, one of the things the Bible will never, in my mind at least, or as, as far, I've never found a passage, I should say, maybe that's a better way to put it. Can't tell God's word or what it won't or won't do. But I'll, I'll say, for me, I've never found a passage that sufficiently explained to me why. Yes, I know he loves me. But why? I wouldn't love me. You're laughing. I wouldn't love you either. <laughs> no, truth of the matter is, is like there's what on earth, what on earth, why does God love me? Right? I mean, it's just, I get that he does and it's because he loves me, but why does he love me? I didn't do anything to earn that. I didn't have a really, really good day that made God suddenly say, oh, I didn't know you had that in you. Good. Okay. Let's save you. That never happened. I can assure you that never happened. Yeah, you know, we all like to judge ourselves based on others, right? We always like to say, well, as long as I'm doing this better than the other guy, I must be okay. I like to point out, I'm sure at one day Hitler held the door for somebody and felt he was doing all right, you know? <laughs> it's like we can always find somebody we're better than on some day, right? But there's really none of that. That doesn't factor in at all. The fact that God loved me is astounding. The fact that he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf? We're going to talk about some of these ideas as we make our way through this book. The idea that Jesus would take my sin off of my shoulders, that heavy weight and burden that I was carrying, and take it upon his own capable shoulders and take it to the cross and pay for it once and for all is mind-blowing to me. But we need to understand grace and our salvation in this light so that we might understand just how gracious and condescending God actually is. Condescending is usually seen in a negative light, right? Don't condescend to me. Don't talk to me like I'm an infant, that kind of thing. We usually say it in that context. But the word condescend simply means to bend down to somebody lower than you, right? In some capacity. They don't understand something, so you explain it or whatever. It's not mansplaining or whatever that term is and all that kind of thing. It's It's like a legitimate... Reaching down to somebody who needs to maybe know something that you don't know or whatever it might be. Well, certainly when it comes to the Lord, that is the most legitimate use of the term condescending you can use. He reached down into our lives and set us free. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out why. But that is who our Lord is. He is gracious beyond measure. And so certainly, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 
Paul is speaking from an assumption. He's talking to believers in Ephesus. Uh, he's, uh, as we mentioned last time, he spent, he made two visits to Ephesus. Once was relatively brief, and then he moved on. The second one was where he actually planted the church and, and put leaders in charge and all that kind of thing. And it began what, uh, it, well, continued what ultimately grew into a rich relationship between Paul and his church. Uh, later in Acts chapter 20, we see him calling these Ephesian elders to him later because he knows when he's gone, they're going to have a lot of heavy lifting to do, a lot of hard work fighting off the false doctrine that's going to come, these ravenous wolves that will come in after his departure. Uh, this church had the benefit of not only Paul's planting of it, but also Timothy's pastoring of it, and as tradition holds, John's living there among them. Tradition holds that after Christ's resurrection and as John grew older, and as you remember at the end of the Gospels, when Jesus puts uh, his his, uh, earthly mother in John's care, tradition holds that he brought her to Ephesus, and that's where she finished out her days. Uh, Ultimately, we know John uh, 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 ends up in Patmos and all this when he writes the book of Revelation and such. But Ephesus was richly blessed. Yet nonetheless, what do we typically know them for by the time Jesus writes them a letter? What happened to them? They lost their first love, right? Think about that and take heed to it, right? (laughs) But this is a church that Paul is writing to, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. He's got brothers and sisters in this place who have joyfully, willfully, uh, lovingly submitted their knee to Christ. They are his, and he is their Lord. This is an important point as well. Because when it comes to the things we're talking about, the richness that comes in this relationship with Christ uh, ultimately starts with being in right relationship with him. A lot of people uh, that claim to be Christians, and I'm, I'm going to be just a little bit direct here for a minute. A lot of people that claim to be Christians have a prayer card and they remember walking down an aisle somewhere. They said a prayer and left the church, the outreach, wherever they were that this happened. Or maybe they prayed in some moment of emotional distress or something like this, and then they left. And there was never anything that took place in their lives after that. Now, some of those people legitimately believe that Jesus died for their sins. They believe he is the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. They have put their trust in him and are genuinely born again, but many are not. Many are not. As a matter of fact, I'm fond of pointing out because it, it kind of occurred to me along the way that you don't see a whole lot of please bow your head and bow your hearts and let's pray and we see a sinner's prayer. We don't see that in scripture very much. We see examples of that moment of conversion, like with the Ethiopian eunuch and that kind of thing. But even there, we didn't see some long bow your head prayer kind of a thing. The idea of coming to faith is more than just the idea of filling out a prayer card. It means that you have put your trust in him. It means that you have received the offer of salvation. It means that you have put your trust and your faith in Christ as he, as the one who alone has paid for your sin and has washed you clean, and you are forgiven because of what he did then at the cross. By receiving his grace by faith, you ultimately become a child of God. That happens in a moment. The idea of growing uh, more and more like him, or the the biblical term for that is sanctification, the idea of being further and further set apart uh, after that initial conversion is something that continues throughout the rest of our lives. There is a moment of conversion, but that moment is one where you are, in fact, converted, where Christ is not just the one who gives you fire insurance, but he's your Lord. 
We mentioned this passage last week, and I'll, I'll mention it again today in 1 Corinthians 6.20, where, where Paul talks about how Christ ultimately paid that, that debt for him, therefore he will glorify Christ with his body. Paul will. That simply means that I'm going to live my life for him. Not going to do it perfectly. Again, Paul recognized his own battles with the flesh. But there is a commitment to say, like the song, right? Uh, the, the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. This idea that I'm his now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. We should not be afraid of the term Lord. We should not attach to it some legalistic relationship with God. No. As John said in his gospel, grace and truth came through Christ Jesus, right? The idea of grace comes with him. So the idea of suddenly going under a legalistic relationship with God should never enter the equation. We have a loving relationship with our Lord. We have a Lord who is generous and gracious and invites us to come and washes our feet. What? Washes our feet when we stumble and fall, when they pick up the dust of the world, if I can use that illustration. One whose love for us is everlasting and never changing. One who through his finished work on the cross has set us free. And even though we remain broken vessels, yet nonetheless he comes, takes us, and fills us to overflowing with the Holy Spirit that we might be useful in his hands and in his work. That's what Paul meant when he said, I will glorify God with my body. I'm his. Blessed be this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He's caused us to prosper. He has caused us and bestowed, or bestowed upon us, I should say, his favor. And again, when we consider our sinful condition, both before and even our struggles now, that is an enormous thing to imagine, that he has blessed us. He has graced us. He has given us beyond our worth or what we deserve. Let me say again, just really quickly, and I don't mean to sound like a heavy-handed downer thing, but there is a, there is a, a theology I would very much like to speak to and correct. Um, and this is the idea that, um, that God, that, that God sent his son to pay for our sin because that's what we're worth. Think about that for a minute. God loves us. And so therefore he gave his only begotten son. I see where the beginnings of that thinking come from, from that transactional standpoint. However, we do make the mistake of sort of applying our sense of transactions and earthly value to that concept. You wouldn't pay more for a car than it's worth, right? Nowadays, you'll end up paying more for a house than it's worth. But I guess a car nowadays too, right? But by and large, our thinking is such where you, you just pay what something's worth. Um, I don't know if he went to his dying day this way, but there's a popular, uh, a man who was very popular for many years and quite influential, even among some very big names in the history of Christendom in the modern day, a man named Robert Schuller, uh, who used to talk about Christ's sacrifice in these terms. And he said that you are of infinite value to God because after all, you only pay what something's worth. I think that's a contorted view. I think that is a man-centered gospel 
that is misguided. The gospel is God's reaching out to us and having paid our debt. But the gospel is ultimately about his glory. The gospel is not about, or maybe let me put it this way, theology is not about man. Theology is about God. And we are better for seeing it that way. It's almost like this. Husbands and wives. Um, a nickel's worth of, uh, about the only marriage advice I can give. The nickel's worth of marriage advice. If you love Jesus more than your spouse, you will love your spouse better than you ever could otherwise. If you love Jesus the most, then you will love your spouse better. But it requires you seeing that that marriage is a covenant relationship that God has given you. And so therefore, honoring him, blessing him, loving him, and showing that love by loving your spouse that way, that's how that's sort of the order of things. When we see theology as man-centered, we sort of remove God from the central point of it and we put ourselves there. When we see God as the central point of theology and as the central figure of Scripture, we come to appreciate him and know him and love him and worship him as he deserves, and we don't diminish that, or at least we become aware when we are. We want to be very, very careful. He is our Lord. He's the master. He certainly didn't get a bargain when he paid for all of us with his shed blood. We might even argue that in human terms, he bit off more than anyone could chew. This, are you sure about this? You know, is there at least some maybe, you know, 7,000-year return policy or some kind of thing? I don't know. But... But the idea is that he is the central figure. He's glorious. And if we start thinking, well, we were worth that, then we start thinking, okay, well, what he did wasn't that big of a deal. We miss the idea of just how far he reached to pull us out. That's why this is important. That's why I would argue against that perspective. And I I apologize if some of you sort of grew up with that. I don't mean to, like, step on your toes unnecessarily, but I think that's an important one. Uh, and having a right perspective on, on God's position in all of this and doing everything we can to make sure we don't diminish that is of the highest priority because it brings the best understanding. It brings him the most glory. It helps us get a true sense of the greatness and goodness, grandness and grace of God. And so our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no other Lord. There is no one else. Paul would say to the Corinthians that we know that in the world there are many lords and many gods, but we know there's only one. The Mormons would quote the first half of that. They don't know about the second half of that. That's true. I remember their eyes opening up like they had no idea that second half of the verse was there. Because in their view, there are lots of gods. They become one. A male Mormon in good standing becomes a god. Paul said, no, we know there's only one. There's lots of things that people call God. Matter of fact, the Antichrist one day will demand to be worshipped above everything that's called God. But there's only one actual Lord. There's only one. And so the Lord, there is no one else. That's why Jesus can rightly say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. No other one. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, again, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Uh, he has blessed us. Okay? Uh, the idea here is, uh, is one of, uh, I'm not an English major, but 
for those of you who understand English grammar and that kind of thing, the way the word has is used here is what's called the aorist tense. The idea that it is generally translated as something that happened before or happened at a point and that kind of thing. The idea with this has blessed is that in Christ and what he accomplished, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. There is a finality about the event that opened the gateway to this blessing. When it comes to our salvation, this is another really important point. So you see why we're taking one verse today and not like all the way through verse 14. But I think these passages deserve this kind of analysis. We want to dig in and understand them. Um, your sins were not forgiven when you said the sinner's prayer. When were your sins forgiven? At the cross, right? That's an important distinction. All sin, past, present, and future, took place at the cross. Those who died before looked forward. Those who died after looked back. But we all ultimately looked to the central event of human history, and that is the redemption that took place in the death, burial, and, cru- and, and resurrection of Christ. And so our sins were finished. The paying of our sin was done then. Which, by the way, brings a strong sense of security, doesn't it? means that if you sin today, and you, you might have already. You may have not have gotten this far without, you know, doing something, you know. But the good news is you didn't lose your salvation when that happened. Because by faith, you have received the finished, the merits of the finished work of Christ and what he accomplished for you. When did he do that? At the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we feel bad about our sin? Sure. I am sorry when I do things that offend God. Thankfully, though, I never have to worry that I've lost my place at the table. I'm kicked out of the grace of God. That doesn't happen. So he has blessed us. There's a point at which the, the, the gateway, the fountain of this became open to us in this way. Now, of course, you could go further than that and say, you know, like in the book of Revelation, where it speaks about him being like a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God is outside of time. And so there's a measure of this where we maybe could bend our noodles trying to figure all that out. But we can point to the cross very clearly and say this is the event that changed everything. He has blessed us. Now, this is also something that continues to bring blessing. Now, Paul will talk about both of these concepts throughout the rest of the verse, really throughout the rest of the book, but certainly throughout this sort of psalm of praise that begin, that, that, that explores this theology, Paul will speak about both the blessing that comes simply from the, the ultimate sense of what we ultimately will receive in, in terms of eternity and, and the fullness of that, that, that purchased possession being redeemed and everything. But then there's also the the richness of the spiritual blessings that we experience today in walking with him. It's literally, and boy, I don't want this to sound trite, but this is God's gift that just continues to keep on giving. But it all connects and centers with this idea of the cross. But every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Uh, Paul will talk about our inheritance in verse 11. He'll use that term, the concept of uh, inheriting. Matter of fact, he talks about our adoption as sons. Uh, legal heirs is another way to think about that. Um, women, you may find that the Bible talks a lot about men and sons and this kind of thing. And culturally, that is exactly the way it was. It was a very patriarchal society and that kind of thing. I'm not apologizing for that. It's just what culture was. It's not my place to apologize for that. I didn't live then, but that's just what it was. But when the gospel comes in and we begin talking about inheriting and believers are referred to as sons, 
It's important for us to understand something. Paul also talks about that in this sense, there is neither slave nor free and all these kinds of things, nor male nor female. When it comes to our place in Christ, in the redemption, as those who stand to inherit, in that context, there is no such distinction between men and women. So when sons is used, it's not being used in some patriarchal sense. It's being used to express the idea of children inheriting from their father. And so this inheritance that is ours now because of what Christ accomplished is for all believers. You and I, as quote-unquote sons, stand to inherit. And that is both true in eternity and also in terms of what God will do today. Now, let me make sure I make a statement here that's, that's very, very clear. God may choose to bless you with some material possessions. He may choose to bless you with finances. He may choose to bless you in some way that is tangible like that. But that is not really the focus of what Paul is talking about throughout this passage. He has blessed us with all what kinds of blessings? Spiritual blessings. Okay? The idea of him blessing us with spiritual blessings. What is in view is something that is of far greater value and of more lasting value than any material thing that we could ever hope for. And this is very important because we tend to think of God blessing us in the material realm as always being an indication of his blessing. There was a rich young ruler who came up to Jesus one day. And said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, we all love Jesus' answer. He answers the question with a question. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Which was probably, I'm sure, intended to stir his mind to thinking a little bit about who he was talking to. Why do you call me good? But then he goes on, and he and Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he mentions... And when you read the passage, you see that Jesus first mentions all the passages that have to do with man's relationship with man. Don't steal, don't kill, these kinds of things. And he says, I've done these things since my youth. What do I still lack? Now, I don't think he was being cocky about it. I think he was legitimately asking. I mean, I've been, I've been, I've tried to be good. I've, I've followed the commandments. I've done what I what I what I know is right I've, I've, from my youth. This has been my practice. What do I still lack? And Jesus said, "Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me." So he did, and he followed Jesus, and he became this great follower of Christ. <laughs> no, he didn't. He walked away sorrowful and sad because he had many possessions. And Jesus told his disciples that it is easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were stunned. Well, then who can be saved? Now, there's two reasons why they were likely stunned. One is because the, the concept of a camel going through the eye of a needle, and the word there is raphium. It's, it's the idea of a sewing needle. It's not this little door next to the big door and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a needle. It's impossible. And that's why Jesus said it's impossible. But the other reason they were stunned is because this guy was a model. Moral financially well-to-do, a leader, probably of a synagogue or of something like that, a person of authority. And he was young. He was accomplished. This is a man who surely is blessed by God. What kept him out of the kingdom of heaven? His love for his wealth, his riches. 
right? Paul would say it's not that money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money can be a blessing. I mean, as long as it doesn't own you, right? Or me. And so, but material wealth is not necessarily the measure of God's blessing. It can actually be more of a curse. And that's why Paul is dealing here with spiritual blessings. Why? Because they are of far greater value and they are far more lasting. That's why when God brings us through very difficult circumstances, that's why when it seems like the bottom is falling out and all we have is him, this is an important place for us to be. And we shouldn't just seek to get out of it. We should seek to learn from it. We should seek to take everything that he wants us to learn and grow through so that we might become more like Jesus. And this requires us to go through difficulties. This requires us to carry burdens from time to time. I'm not talking about the yoke. He said, carry his yoke. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, right? But he does ask us to go through some pretty deep valleys and over some pretty hard hills to climb. And that's because he wants us to learn some very important lessons. God will not waste a moment of your life or mine, but he will infuse every moment with opportunity for you to know him better and to grow more deeply with him. This is why you and I don't just go to heaven the minute we get saved. Some of us probably wish we were a little bit like the thief on the cross, right? This day, he'll be with me in paradise. Yes. That's not what happened. Some of us have been at it for a little while now, and we're waiting with anticipation, expectation. But again, it's that sense of what is yet to come and whose hands it's in and whose hands I'm in that caused me to see this life through that lens. Sometimes we put it this way. It's not just that he went to prepare a place for us. He's also preparing us for the place. Again, it's a little trite of a saying, but there's some truth to that. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, again, this uh, this would also stand in contrast to those who commit themselves to earthly treasures. In our study in Revelation, we came across a concept of the earth dwellers, uh, those who were really of this world and not of the next, really, those who are not citizens of heaven, like Paul would describe in Philippians 3.20. Uh, that's where our true citizenship is. Therefore, we're just working here until we ultimately get to go home. But there are those for whom this is their home. We're in contrast, distinction to that. That's not what we are. And that's why when it comes to the kinds of blessings we seek, they should always be at least anchored in, if not entirely about, the spiritual growth that comes through these things. This is the kind of blessing he's blessed us with. Now, for the world outside, they have no understanding of this kind of thing. Well, why are you living for this? It's like, live for now. I mean, you don't know that there's a heaven and all that kind of stuff. You know, Paul actually made that part of his argument in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, you know, if in fact there is no resurrection from the dead, then you and I are of all men most pitiable. Why not eat and be merry for tomorrow we die? That's a very logical argument. That's a reasonable point. But we know that Christ is risen from the dead is his answer to that. We know that Jesus is alive. We know that he rose from the dead. And therefore, because he lives, we too shall also live. And so because that's true, that becomes our focal point. That becomes our north star, our guiding, uh, you know, sign and such. That's, that's, that's what we ultimately anchor ourselves to is the knowledge that we will be with him and see him one day. We'll say goodbye to this world and you and I will see each other again on that side and that'll be awesome, right? But that's what we ultimately are living for. And the things that we have or 
whatever God decides to give us in this life are just tools and resources along the way on the journey to that. And so he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Blessings like grace, glory, the inheritance he'll talk about and these kinds of things. And I'm going to wrap there for today because ultimately, and this is the connecting point, we've talked about blessing in sort of a uh, a lateral sort of uh, way today. But ultimately, again, what Paul is going to be pointing to in the passages that follow, that this is really the beginning of, speak to the far loftier things and the, and the much higher things, the Christ-centered, uh, all-encompassing concept that, that's rooted in him and this kind of thing. The ultimate, the ultimate blessing is the idea that we are secure and saved in him. This is the blessing, capital T, that ultimately becomes the focal point, the main focal point throughout. And so we'll begin to look at that next time we're here in Ephesians. Um, but for now, I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer, and we're going to share in the Lord's Supper today. Now, I mentioned along the way the importance of making sure that Jesus himself is your Lord. Now, it may be that you're not a Buddhist or a Hindu or you don't believe in uh, Islam or some kind of a thing. And so you think, well, by default, I must be a Christian then. Or maybe you're not an atheist. You believe there's a God or a higher power or something like that. And so you believe that, therefore, you, this is probably where you're at already because you're not one of those other things. But the truth of the matter is, most people in the world, even if they belong to other systems, these systems are this way, but even if you're not part of them, you very likely believe that your salvation is based on how good of a person you are, how well you sort of keep the commandments and that kind of thing. Uh, well, by the way, there were more than, there were more than 10. There's actually over 600. A lot of them you probably don't even know. So how do you know you've kept them your whole life, right? And really, you haven't. Paul already kind of put the lid on that one. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all guilty. That's our starting point. Matter of fact, David went even further in the Psalms and said, in my mother's womb, I was born in iniquity. Right? So this, I mean, really, you're, you're not even out of the gate yet. <laughs> all right? But that's the point, is that that's not just what we do. Sin is not just what we do. We are sinners. It's what we bring into this life. So we start hopeless. That's encouraging. We start with no hope. But again, it's important to know that because that causes us now to realize that he is the answer to this and he is the only answer to this. So if you're here today, and I know I said this whole thing about, you know, you don't read in the Bible a lot of bowing your heads and all this kind of thing, but we are going to do that. I don't think it's wrong to do that. I'm just saying this isn't about you simply saying a prayer this morning and walking out and thinking everything's great. It's about you being born again this morning. It's about you leaving the path that leads to destruction and entering onto the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. It's about you leaving darkness and coming into light. And this is something that is all of God. Your belief this morning is simply your entrance into that which God has opened for you. And I want to give you that opportunity here this morning. And the understanding and belief that Jesus went to the cross, God in the flesh, went to the cross, paying for your sin and mine. And if you're wondering, well, why the cross? What's this? I don't understand all this. There is a whole rich theology behind this, but it is simply this, is that Jesus became a man. The eternal word of God became a man and took on a body of flesh so that he might shed his blood for us. The only other option for him coming into the world and saving us was you and I dying for our own sin, which means we would go to hell 
forever because it's what we deserve. That's the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. But because he came and became like one of us, again, taking our sin upon himself, he who knew no sin, that we might take on his righteousness in him. This is why Jesus came. And so I'm going to pray right now and give opportunity for anybody who'd like to come by faith and receive the grace of God to be wonderfully and beautifully born again into the family of God. Now, you've already heard me tell you that doesn't mean your life's going to be easy. God sometimes brings us through some very difficult things in order to help us grow. So I want to paint this rose-colored picture that everything's going to be beautiful for you for the rest of your life. It may not be always so easy. The difference between now and a moment from now is that you will never walk alone. You will never walk alone. And when this journey finally comes to an end, it will end before the throne of God, where you will stand unashamed and unafraid. And that's all the difference between then and where you are right now. So let me invite you to come and receive Jesus. Father, we are very grateful for the gospel. We're thankful for the goodness of God. Your goodness and grace, shown in the face of Christ Jesus, who took our sin upon himself, And washed us clean. We thank you that he who knew no sin. Became sin on our behalf. That we might become. The righteousness of God. In him. Truly blessed are those to whom you do not impute sin. Father I pray for those who are here this morning. Who are maybe for the first time hearing the gospel explained. And they realize now that it's true. They understand their condition, their place outside of of your grace. And they're done with that. They realize now you're their only hope. I pray that you put it in their hearts not to hesitate, not to wait till next week or wait till some other opportunity, but to realize that there is nothing of greater value than being in right relationship with you in Christ. So, Father, I pray. By the way, that whistle, that's for you to come. Yeah, you. Well, I want you to pray with me right now. I'd invite you to pray with me as we, as we do. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. Wretched man that I am. Wretched woman that I am. But I thank you that the answer to my wretchedness, to my lostness, is Christ himself, who took my sin upon his shoulders and paid for it once and for all, past, present, and future, at the cross. I believe in what he did for me. I believe that he died and rose again. I believe that he is the Lord. And I thank you for your grace toward me. I thank you for saving me and setting me free from the penalty of my sin. And I thank you that one day, when I stand before you, I won't have to be afraid or ashamed because Jesus did it all. Thank you. Help me to follow you each day, walking in your ways to bless you and honor you, always remembering your grace toward me is sufficient. I love you and praise you. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer, by the way, welcome to the family of God. We're going to share communion together. Uh, now, you may have had communion in the past, but this is the first time you're doing it as a believer. This cup, this bread, this cup that we're going to share, 
uh, is done in remembrance of what we just talked about, what he accomplished for us. And so as you take the bread, and we're just going to play and worship while you partake of communion. So as we do, I want you to go ahead and take the bread, remembering that this represents his broken body for you. And when you take the cup and you drink it, that you remember that this represents his blood that was shed for the remission of the sins of many, that this is the entrance into the new covenant. It's now something you're part of. And for those of you who've been for a long time, it's no less fresh or beautiful for us to celebrate it ourselves. And so let me invite you to do that while we worship with this song, and then we'll go ahead and close our service afterward. By the way, I guess I should mention, too, to, to stick around because we're also going to celebrate our July birthdays. Uh, so I want to thank Janet and the, the hospitality uh, folks for getting things ready for us out there. But let's go ahead and let's worship. We'll ask the ushers to come and pass out communion. And um, that's how we're doing it, right? Okay, we'll bring it to you, and then uh, go ahead and partake as we're worshiping.
Father, we are very grateful for all that you've done in Christ for us, setting us free from our sin, washing us, and making us pure in your sight. We thank you that you no longer see us as the broken, fallen sinners that we came to you as. But now you see us through what Christ has done, clean, forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for this. We pray that, Father, as we consider both this and all that it brings with it, the richness of this, all that is yet to come, and the blessing that you even bestow today, that deeper place in knowing you. Help us to always look back to this moment in time, that moment where Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Thank you that because he lives, so too shall we. Father, we praise you and thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't we all stand? Let's sing a closing song together. We'll sing, Blessed Be be Your Name.
Praise the Lord. Hey, uh, we mentioned we're going to celebrate our uh, July birthday. So who's all got a July birthday? Raise your hand. Oh, Eli back there too, huh? Okay, he's got... Okay, Eli, Wyatt, Tracy, all right. Moss, oh gosh, okay. Wow. Who else? Right. Oh, And uh, who in the back there, too? I just saw someone else's hand up. Oh, Reagan, too. All right. Okay, that's a lot of names. Uh, yeah, how about all y'all? All right, here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear all y'all. And, oh, and America, by the way, too. Happy birthday to you. Awesome. Well, happy birthday. And uh, as we mentioned, uh, Janet went out and got a cake. So there's some cake out there and some stuff to give you a good reason to hang out for a bit. So go enjoy and have a great week. And God bless you all.